since we were going to do some things, I made sure the last two or three days to kind of slide back into the news cycle a little bit. I, I find that it was just exactly where I left it. Uh, uh. Hi, and welcome to the Johnny Random Show. Today's episode is on globalization, and this is really the third part in a series. The first one, we talked about uh, fake money and monetary policy and sort of set a uh, domestic groundwork for how to think about uh, a lot of the issues of our current age. And then the second part would be we talked about China and our relationship on the international stage. And so today is globalization and how um, how that intermixes with all of these different elements. And it's really its own thing. So I had to give it its own episode. All right. So the first thing uh, topic that we're going to dive into today is uh, the golden arches theory and how we got to our current system. So um, this is something Jeremy mentioned in the first episode um, brought to my attention, actually something I forgot about. I learned about a while ago, but I had not really thought about it recently. Um, But it was basically the idea if you had uh, McDonald's in every country, then these countries wouldn't fight each other because they had an economic uh, reason not to. And I think that that um, so probably shaken that theory a lot when you look at uh, the recent events in Ukraine. Um, and so, <clears throat> um, yeah, so I'll, I'll pitch this to Jeremy. Do you think that that, um, that system, the Golden Arches, was all a lie or was there validity to it and there were just forces that overwhelmed it and now it's not um, as applicable or... What are your thoughts on that Golden Arches mentioned, uh, theory? Because you mentioned that previously, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit more on that. Sure. I, I certainly believe it was their original plan uh, to uh, undermine the nation state. Uh, if you know, if you look at early globalist works, you know, they, they are absolutely convinced that Germany and German nationalism caused World War I and World War II, which, of course, ha- I mean, has some validity to it. It's not like, it's not like uh, uh, Hitler did not play on uh, the uh, the German homeland, the unjust peace in World War One at the Treaty of Versailles, uh, you know the, the punishment they were there. So I mean, he really built a lot of what he did on, you know, so sort of like making Germany great again. If we can, if we can borrow the original. And so uh, when you, so that's where it got started. Now somewhere along the way, you know, I think because of economic forces. It was more or less co-opted by oligarchs, you know, the oligarchs of Davos, man, the World Economic Forum. But before that, you know, there were always large, you know, corporate uh, corporations that were interested in uh, trade across countries. I mean, when you open up a country to a new uh, commercial market for one, for a, a, a company and you turn it into an international company, I mean, those, those are those are that's where you start trillions of dollars start flowing in and so i do believe originally globalism was began because they were trying to undermine the nation state and so they did that through trade and then along the way though the advantages that were uh compiled by large international corporations you know be they apple or amazon or like that they began to buy off internally in those nation states, those people too, at lobbyists at the lobbyist level and began to write their own laws, the way incumbency always advantages them. So I do believe that that was the original goal. And then it transitioned uh, and became more uh, economically mercenary in its, in its basis and uh, began to be about <clears throat> money alone, mainly, you know, you can see the National Basketball Association there, 
desire not to criticize China, for instance, and jeopardize sneaker sales or jeopardize television and things like that. You can see that used to have a national, uh, an organ, a basketball organization that was American in its like nation, national, you know, when it said national, it was talking about the American nation that is now an international organization. And the way that money, you know, I think that's why the Bible would teach us that money's the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of evil. It's just the root of all kinds of evil. And so it just multiplies uh, when it's taken over by these mercenary interests. But now, uh, you know, I, I think what the globalists didn't take into account is that there are people that can't be bought off. There's still where you find a love of land, a love of neighbor, a love of family, where you still find, you know, what I would call traditional valued people. And you find those in the heartland in America, you find them all across Europe. I mean, obviously the five-star party in Italy, I mean, Le Pen just came within, you know, you might say 20 percentage points of beating Macron and Macron has a huge uh, win there. But Macron was in a fight for his life against somebody that they would never have elected. I mean, she wouldn't have got five percent 10 years ago. You know, the National Front had to be totally reworked. You've got Orban in Hungary, you've got the Law and Justice Party in Poland, you've got the Czech Republic in Eastern Europe, you know, in Germany and in Sweden and in Norway, you also have rising parties of nationalism. So there are people that value things other than money and the people that can't be bought off for a while, we were okay because we, uh, they didn't go after the nation state at its core. But when they start to tear down statues, when they start to move away from national documents, when they start to undermine, you know, sort of the, the, the national culture and uh, things like that, there are certain, there's a group of people that they can't be bought off and they're not going to be bought off. Like I'm not going to be bought off. You know, there's no amount of money you can, you can offer me to betray my people, my country, my family. And so I think that there's still a significant healthy group of people in in the West, even, you know, I mean, they're all over the East. This is the, the East is still this way, but the West, uh, there's still a healthy group of people who can't be bought off. And so now, now, now that their mercenary sort of, uh, their mercenary sort of motives have been revealed. And now that you can see that they're clearly uh, undermining their own nations, their own peoples with open border policies, you know, doing things that no other nation would do, especially in America, I would say, you've, uh, you know, the Trump presidency in 2016, still you've got that, uh, you know, Joe Biden is probably in the Democratic Party is probably about to be wiped off the planet, you know, basically in the next midterm uh, election. And so nationalism is back because there's still a healthy group of people that love their nations and understand that you can't judge love by virtue signaling in the sense that you can't say, well, I love Ukraine uh, and therefore let's go and protect Ukraine if you're not gonna love your own people in, the, on, in Texas, you know, and farmers in Texas or in Arizona or in California, or if you're gonna let your a city like San Francisco, a great city that built a Golden Gate Bridge. That's not a federal project. That was a city project. Cities can do wonderful things. You know, we had these great cities and as we watch our own cities pass, cast into demise, it's hard to motivate people to go to other places and save those cities if you're not going to do that. So I just think the conflict, the conflict in uh, the human heart, you know, uh, there's, we always have needs that need to be met. And so there is the ability to appeal to us from mercenary motives. But there's also something more than that with us. And that more 
is our relationship together as a people and as a nation, you know, language, blood, history, the kind of ties that really bind uh, the idea that, you know, America is a nation of ideas, but it's also a nation of shared history, people, language, and that kind of thing. And so I, I think globalism is the past and it's all, it's already, it's already passing. And uh, Russia was the first really large nation to upset the apple cart on a global scale. So funny, it's called uh, nationalism when you want to uh, attack it, you know, German Nazi not, uh, nationalism, but it's patriotism when it's a good thing, you know, <laughs> so it's the same. Right. Just, just a side note, too, when I was younger, say, uh, and you guys may be old enough to remember this, but, you know, uh, uh, Walmart used to build an entire brand off selling things that were American made. They actually used to put yeah. flags over the things that were made. And uh, you had, you know, Levi's followed that as well back in the 90s. And so there was a huge push in the mid 90s, especially. So this is not, I think it's easy for us to think that this is new because uh, of Donald Trump's presidency in 2016. And then these various works that are going on all over Europe. But the truth is, those those movements have are very old movements. They've been around a long time. They just gained steam because what they prophecy has kind of come true largely. Sure. Hey Matt, uh, Golden Eight Arches uh, theory. Um, do you was well, it good or bad to you? We'll just go ahead and jump to the next question because I think I think it's a bit idealistic. Would be the the best answer to that. Um, there could be good that would come out of it if it were true, um, just like communism, you know, the idea that that everybody shares all resources and, and uh, everything is owned by all people. Like if that could actually happen, then I think good could come out of it. But in practice, it definitely can't. And that's, I would say, the real flaw with globalism. Um, it's this idea, free trade free trade on steroids you know it is the the ultimate expression of what we want to have inside of our country applied to all countries the problem with that is that um without somebody that is sufficiently able to oversee justice uh, internationally uh, it becomes the wild west so instead of the promised land that the global market it's supposed to be we ended up in the wild west where the strongest companies you know shoot their competition and you know win so um yeah it's just it, it's a it's a nightmare is is what i would say um, but i don't think that it was ill-intentioned and i think that if it were possible to work that it would be good yeah so not kind good of. bad but a nightmare so i'm gonna give a, a slight <laughs> view um you know because well, i've in some doc documentaries and they're talking about how um globalism basically allowing third world countries to their markets to enjoy and get into the game you know and lifting the i think less than or half the world was let, working on less than dollar a day and over the last several uh 10 years or that first decade of the 2010s that changed and they credit that largely to globalization and free trade and NAFTA and all these different uh, different um, systems that were in place, these world systems. And I think that when it works okay when you have a world policeman and a global hegemon. And so I don't think it, uh, I think it was conceptualized earlier than, uh, you know, in the, what is that treaty after World War II where, um, 
Uh, it's escaping me right now. But Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods, yeah. Sort of conceptualized in that, but it didn't really take fruition until after um, the bipolarization of the world turned into a unipolar world where the, you know, the U.S. was a global hegemon and now the U.S. dollar was king. And now it could truly, yeah. it's like now truly the globalization dreams can be fulfilled because Pax Americana. you cannot you cannot really make a system like that work without a system of rules. And I think it worked too well. And so it, it, it's like liberal, uh, libertarian ideology w without constraints. You know, it has, to me, some, some negative side effects in that, you know, it's very a dog-eat-dog -dog world and where the, the, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know? <laughs> you can't do it um you know if you can't get ahead it's free and open and you know playing field so anybody ought to be able to do it. if i can do it anybody can do it type mentality and what we've had recently and i think to me why you're seeing such a harsh backlash with brexit uh macron almost getting defeated recently trump you know a couple years ago all of these things are saying that like hey a lot of people got left behind in these countries that were advanced. And so, yeah, you may have brought the third world, you know, into a second world or a one and a half world now is not even in the second world yet, but it's coming up. In some places, it was a little bit more successful than others. Um, some places were very successful, right? BRICS, you know, those BRIC countries, they're very successful. The rest of them, you know, kind of getting a little bit of six in on the success. But what it did is it created, I think, a lot of bitterness uh, in the in the first world. <laughs> so I think that's why you're seeing a lot of the reaction because it's almost like our global elites, global elites, care more about the other rest of the world than this world that they live in. And it is an attack on nation states. And so how I don't think we've had a very productive conversation on that up until this date. Uh, in my opinion, and that's why part of started the impetus for having this conversation. So, uh, anybody respond? Want to respond to that? <laughs> I don't think I'm disagreeing. I think I'm just maybe trying to play devil's advocate a little bit. Yeah, I I always look at it. So we talk about free trade, but re really, what free trade was, and that and GAFTA and all that was was extremely targeted trade, and it targeted specific aspects within the U.S. to literally destroy. So, you know, as an example, we imported Chinese steel, no tariff, but they had high tariffs on American steel in China. We couldn't ship there. Uh, during the Trump presidency, we found out that we had 180% tariff on American dairy going into Canada, but Canada was paying zero to ship dairy into the U.S. So there was a lot of targeted trade and what it was targeted for was actually to build up what they thought of as the middle class in other countries and exactly. so you know and they would say well you know when they destroyed say the steel sector you know they would say learn to code you know we just learned to code and yeah. so their 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 answer their answers to things were were kind of be well-intentioned you could see that after world war ii is the first place they do it right we reset the german mark so the German mark, their wallpaper and walls with a thing. They get rid of it. They set a new mark. They make it where you can't print it. Uh, they give they give uh, Germany a really strong currency. And then they turned the uh, Bavarian Motor Works, BMW, right into a car company from an airplane company for 
build uh, airplanes anymore, but then they make it they make it so that they actually have advantages in America and other places to sell their goods and German engineering, you know, have always been known as great engineers. And so we actually did a lot against our own interest to rebuild Germany and to rebuild Europe after World War II. And then we took that show on the road. You know, we took it to, we took it to Africa and then we took it to Asia. And uh, a lot of that too was not really done. Uh, like there's been a lot of money spent there. And uh, as much as we've lifted people from poverty, a lot of those places are not really all that better off because they they didn't learn to be self-sufficient. They didn't learn their, their you know, I saw this, I, I've been involved in uh, some missions organizations that were that build businesses and things like that and help people build businesses and loans and banking and say in Uganda and places. And so we saw this where a lot of what we did actually damaged the third world uh, or the developing world. We damaged their ability to uh, be self-sufficient and we made them dependent. And, uh, you know, China learned this as well and have gone back now and used the same sort of techniques that we used originally to try to help those countries. But they came back through and did what they wanted to do, which is what we had actually done and what it ended up happening. On accident. Yeah, we, what, what we did on accident, but they saw how well it worked. They did it on purpose. And they, they built the Silk Road and, uh, and a Belt. And uh, they, they've indebted countries to them. They've taken over their infrastructures and things like that. So, you know, globalism in and of itself, I think, starts out with this let's help the poor concept. And I think that, you know, just like just like all of us, you know, we have a hard time seeing the trade-offs of what will happen when, say, you destroy all the steel towns in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Now they're opioid dens and they've been run into the ground and their local businesses and cultures have been destroyed and their towns were emptied out because they had to go somewhere else to find jobs and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, think globalism has been uh, in some degree a success. I mean, obviously, because it was a very efficient system that provided very cheap goods, but people did not realize that what they were doing, just paying higher taxes, the money was going to whatever central power it was going to being washed around and then sent out to like, you know, if it's to, being sent out to farmers, being sent out to producers, being sent out to people. So that we really didn't get cheap goods. We just got higher taxes that went. And then we paid for the, we brought the price of the good down by just sloshing money out of Washington into the pockets of agribusiness and that kind of thing. And that's what really lowered prices. It wasn't so much competition like it should have been. Uh, it was more, you know, central command and control is what it ended up being. So seems like there was no end game and it didn't, I don't think it even worked, like I said, until the unipolar system came about after the, you know, fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and then now I think that it's going to fall apart. I think it's, it's already past its, you know, like you said, or I think Russia was, is the first, um, we're going back to a bipolar world. That was the whole Russia episode. I mean, China episode was talking about how Russia is basically, you know, China is letting Russia overextend itself. It becomes the, you know, uh, currency, the, what's it called? Uh, the world's lender. No, the um, reserve currency. Reserve currency. Yeah. And it's got the Silk uh, Belt and Road Initiative. It's got its fingers in, you know, all across the globe. And so it's creating its own little axis over there. And, you know, it's going to let larger powers that 
you know, would try to rival its uh, bipolar, you know, force fall. And so it can become that, uh, that secondary force. And its attention is to overcome that. Now, I don't think they can do it. I really don't. The more I've been looking into China, the more I think that uh, you can't authoritarian government your way into success, you know, and people like to say, you know, that they're more um, capitalist than we are. I don't see that, you know, uh, as far as like, they, you know, when you, when you create an environment for this capitalist system to, you know, work, it's, it's not capitalism. It's, you know, it's, it is authoritarianism and it's not going to, I don't think it's going to pan out for them. And I don't think they're nearly as strong as they think they are. And when you're at the whims of one person, when you lock down your economy over and over and over through a global pandemic, you are really kneecapping yourself. And yeah, it's like engineered love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. It's, uh, it's not going to work as good as you think it is. I, I don't. China has a ton of problems in and of itself. I mean, they had a one child policy for 60 years. Their demographics are absolutely disastrous. No one talks mm -hmm. about their de demographic winter. I mean, they are staring a demographic winner in the, in the face. And then they started saying, no, 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 you can have more children, but they can't, they, cr they create a, a one child, a one child policy for 60 years, create a one child culture. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so now people are, you know, that's sort of ingrained. You can't just make a law and expect where people to go, okay, now I can have three kids, but they had been one, they'd already been trained to be one. They had agreed to the oneness. And so now they've got a real aging population and they've got a ton of debt. And they've got a free floating currency as well that they just change the pegs on whenever it, uh, it suits them to devalue it. Uh, so, you know, to, to create advantages for themselves in the market. I mean, that, that kind of stuff works in short terms, but it won't, they have cities that are built to no, that, that are like our bridges to nowhere in from uh, the 1930s. I mean, they have entire cities no one lives in. They're just concrete right. jungles. They just poured them out. So, I mean, a lot of their growth uh, a lot of their growth has come come at the expense of uh, you know actual economics. So I always say, what comes up must come down. What goes up, you know up on an escalator comes down on an elevator. And I would expect I would expect China's going. You know, China's just as afraid that the United States will fail as uh, as uh, the United States is afraid that it will fail. I mean, the, the China is still very, very dependent on the U.S. Do they have a middle class? Yes. Do they have Do they have enough in their middle class, enough purchasing power in their middle class to support their production? They do not. They do not. I also, as much as I, I used to think of them as like, you know, they're, they're my, you know, the next thing, you know, but I think that they've already overextended themselves, but I don't think it's too late. I think in a deglobalized world, you don't know what's next, you know, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, when we're headed for, looks like either cold war two or world war three and i don't know which it is yet i think it's too early to tell i don't think anybody can tell um you know we're we're we do not have sound leadership right now in the white house and i don't think that that bodes well for this situation in ukraine and russia i think that that is a very precarious situation and we could be a couple years away from active conflict, you know, which truly and deeply bothers me, you know. Um, but also, I think, too, uh, you know, a Cold War with China could just as easily 
take place. And I think that there's a, a there's a case to be made that they will shore up their, you know, sometimes you're better, you know, iron sharpens iron, right? So if you have a strong competition makes you compete back. And I think that's where China could fall into. If they do, if chips do fall in their favor over the next several years, um, and, you know, who knows how much longer, I mean, Xi Jinping is, what, 60-something years? So, I mean, he probably has a good decade um, of leadership or more um, left. But after him, who knows what could happen, you know? And you're, you're talking about a country with over 1.4 billion people. That's, that's a lot of possibilities, um, and it has a long tradition of, uh, of existence to pull from. So I, I don't underestimate them, but I also, I think that we shouldn't overestimate them either. But what it means for America, deglobalization is going to hurt. You know, I think that's the bottom line um, that I've, bottom line conclusion that I've come to is going to hurt. Um, so let me, let me talk about NATO for a second. Um, first of all, should we have gotten rid of NATO after the fall of uh the Soviet Union, um, was there a case in you guys' opinion, and we'll go back to Matt, for keeping NATO around um, and adding countries to NATO? And then after we talk, talk about the hypothetical, you know, should it have existed or not existed, what is its role today? Should it be expanded? Um, should we just keep it where it is? What, how can we de-escalate with Russia, um, if that's possible, um, Matt? Well, oh goodness, what order to take all that in? So, should it exist? Um, well, I think after it the was, fall of the Soviet Union. After the fall of the Soviet Union, um, it would be foolish to lay down arms, like completely, obviously. Um, and those, the treaties that we made uh, were things that have to continue, and they were commitments that were made. So, I would say it can't not those we had no idea when this um threat was going to subside nor really if the threat had subsided because a country that was very um desperately destabilized still had nuclear weapons a lot of them so even though we say the cold war ended in the they wanted to say that it ended because you know a victor was was there people in the pentagon people in the know knew that it could be set off again you know it, there's all it would take is you know how germany um after world war one had a a bit of a period of of quiet and then a, a leader came in who was going to fix the problems well that's exactly what happened with with um putin a leader came in and he fixed the problems left over from this um, defeat in a war because they lost in the Cold War. So he is like the last administration just didn't do it right. Well, I'm going to fix things. So, I mean, I think NATO relaxing would probably have been a mistake. They didn't repeat the same mistake of uh, World War One to Two, where they penalized the, the country that had uh, instigated it. So I mean, I don't know. I think I think we did roughly right. Whether or not it should have been expanded is another question. Um, 
uh, it, it's good to make friends. It's good to have allies. Um, uh, whether or not you need to continue to expand and to make it, I don't know. That's, yeah. a, that's a tough call. I, I think that it's, it's justifiable, well, think it's whether it's justified than, in what's hindsight. What's different than uh, after you know World War One with Germany is we introduced the Russia to the global system. Like that's how we the oligarchs were created. We tried to establish and give them a here's how you join the rest of the world. That you know we're going to give you the golden arches. You know this is your you know introduction in there. We didn't want to repeat that. I think, but I felt like I feel like possibly Russia. I mean, we talked out of both sides of our mouth. Okay, like so here's your you know here's how you join the rest of the democracies, right? And here's also, we're going to keep expanding NATO, which is a military force, a military alliance against you. So we're going to let you into the club, but we're also going to build up uh, potentially. I feel it, like it sends mixed messages at, 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 at least. And I think that, uh, so maybe we did half right, you know, but I think that, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's just my thoughts on, on you know, what you're saying. NATO is a strategic alliance that is actually essentially trying to do what the nuclear weapons have done, but without necessarily going to nuclear threat. Um, so NATO is has Article 5, right, where any nation that is attacked by anybody. So let's say Iran decides to attack uh, Poland. That wait, is Poland part of Turkey? NATO? Yeah, I think Poland is. Yeah, Turkey and Poland, either one. So if any of those happen, that that would trigger Article Five, under my understanding of it. Yeah. So it's a strategic alliance that is not limited to Russia. It's basically an acknowledgement that these people have a common interest in defending each other and a common enough um, form of government that they feel comfortable committing to do so. Yeah, I don't know. Jeremy, do you, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, should it have been abolished after the Soviet Union fell or expanded? I'm a, I, so I'll, I'm a, I'm a pretty staunch like localist and, and nationalist. So the NATO alliance, I, I believe had its, uh, had its, most fruitful period uh, during World War II and uh, when the World War II was ended, I would have preferred NATO be uh, disbanded. I'm sort of a goodwill toward all alliances with none. Uh, I, uh, I stay away from like, I, I try to stay away from global organizations altogether just because they're the distance from the rule between the ruled and, the, uh, and those who are ruling becomes so disparate between, you know, so if NATO make, for instance, that Article 5 reminds me a lot of how World War I even started. You know, you had an assassination, the Croats and the Serbs, and then they declared war on each other, and then both had allies, and because, they're, because they had declared war on each other, then you had their allies jumped in until the whole world was involved, and so I, I look at, like, the Ukraine situation and uh, see that Ukraine is in a fight for its life against Russia, probably, because we tried to push uh, NATO, at least at some level. And I don't think all this is true. I mean, some of this is a little, is a little dicey because, you know, Russia has, 
Russia has its own history and idea of itself as a spiritual kingdom too. Uh, there's Mother Russia, and so there's a lot that go into that. But they do have a history of being invaded twice, you know, from the West, uh, obviously. And so um, they do have a legitimate complaint about bringing uh, missiles right up to their uh, border. And so if, you know, if they were going to place, if uh, Russia or China was trying to place uh, missiles somewhere near my border in Mexico, we'd be pretty upset about it. So uh, I think I think that uh, in that case, so I'm not a big NATO, I'm not a big NATO guy. Uh, I, I think that all those countries over there should have their own armies and should defend themselves and we shouldn't be paying for their defense. And a lot of what has caused our economic woes has been us trying to fulfill our NATO obligations of defending these nations and putting uh, bases in their nations and building the economics of those nations. You know, several times we try to relocate uh, bases out of uh, Germany or in Germany even, and that we wouldn't do it because the uh, towns had been had built their economies around these uh, U.S. Army bases. And if the bases came out of those areas, you're going to hurt the German economy. So we, we ended up sort of being a little trapped. And then the, like the Germans and the French and the British didn't pay their fair share. You know, one of the big things that Donald Trump brought to the to the forefront was how they were supposed to be setting aside a certain part of their GDP for defense to pay us back for all they'd done. And they hadn't done it. And yeah. so here we'd done targeted trade. Here we'd ripped our middle class out. You know, here we are committed to their defense. And then they do not reciprocate. They do not hold up their end of the bargain. And it puts us in a position like this, like Ukraine, I am. Uh, I do not want to see women and children killed, and I do not want to see a defenseless nation destroyed by another nation. But I also look at that region, and I apply what I call, or what has been called, subsidiarity. Right. So there is, uh, you know, uh, I'm nearer to you, John Mark, than I am to someone in Peru. And if there's a problem in Peru, then you have a Peruvian neighbor helps to solve that. I don't hop on a plane and solve it. So that in those parts of the world, and I feel this way about the Middle East too, the nations of those, of the places in this world, they understand the history and the culture better than we do. They understand the intricacies of the, of the, the organizations. They, you know, they know who speaks Russian in Ukraine and who doesn't. They know more about the Donbass and they know more about Ossetia and they know more about all these regions than we do. And so while we can have experts that study it from afar, it's still not our culture language. It doesn't, it doesn't proceed from something we really were a part of. And so I would rather see localized organizations. And what I mean by localized, I mean like Eastern Europe, Eurasia, the region handle that problem and negotiate through that uh, rather than us. And so, but, but if we push NATO as far as Eurasia, uh, okay. then we invite, I mean, Article 5 can be, I mean, I'm not going to war for Turkey. I have no interest in fighting Turkey's wars. Erdogan is a complete jerk. I mean, who does some crazy stuff. We need to get out of bed with these tin pot dictators and uh, do as George Washington instruct us, which is to have goodwill toward all and alliances with none, if we can keep it. And I'm not against treaties. The constitution makes a way for that and all right. those kind of things. I just want to be careful in the way we make those treaties and those treaties need to have a start and stop date. They need to have a they need to have a beginning and an end. We don't need these perpetual kind of treaties. I mean, right. it's like Taiwan. What are we going to do when China comes for Taiwan? How, how many American boys are we going to send to Taiwan? And people are going to say, hey, we've committed to defending Taiwan through a treaty 50 or 60 years ago. There's no argument really against that. We, so we have to, 
are, are we going to send are we going to send American boys to die in Taiwan if China invades? If we don't, we violated a treaty and we broke our word. If we do, I'm still not sure we're going to be doing the right thing. So they just keep us these perpetual treaties keep the keep us caught in or in organizations that the world changes around them and uh, their reason for being, I think, ceased, you know, at the end of World War II, where it started. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree. I, I would nuance that I don't think that the way NATO has ever been implemented was wise. But do I think that it has value and that if it were uh, a little more laid back in a way, Article 5 is just way aggressive. Um, if we're a little more laid back, um, at least post-Cold War, then that would make a lot more sense because we really shouldn't have these bases that are there forever and these treaties that are there forever. I agree. I agree. Rational leaders before, too. You know, I mean, we had people, I mean, we had the, we had the, United, the president of the United States called Vladimir Putin a thug and a murderer. I don't disagree mm-hmm. with the statement. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong to even have said it. I'm just saying that that is not diplomacy. And the whole keep your friends closer and your enemies closer. I mean, we're talking, we're brandishing, you know, we're rattling sabers and using the language of war, but then we don't expect the reciprocation of it. And uh, it's just an extreme, we are acting in an extremely arrogant way right now that's so arrogant you know, you would never talk to anybody that was your enemy that way, especially if you thought it might come to blows and it might end up killing your whole family. You'd be trying to avoid that conflict as much as you possibly can. But we are these the wisdom of our leadership has just, you know, on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Joe Biden is an extreme example of incompetency. <laughs> I mean, it's incompetent. But the Republican side, I would say, is not much more competent you know, than the Democratic side, just slightly more competent. I just feel like they're trying to exist within the space that has been created at that, 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 that we've all inherited, you know, rather than trying to debate the great issues of our time. And this is something that kind of constantly frustrates me. We're, we're constantly debating New Deal, uh, Great Depression era politics when we're in a globalized world we have a different set of issues we have immigration we have technology big tech uh what do we do in this space and we have globalization we're we're closer to our neighbors than ever and i I think that the i don't disagree with anything you're saying jeremy i just think that uh there's a a part of me that says we do have some interest in what goes on in the world because we have for good or for ill, we have microchips and a lot of goods, all our supply chains are in all these other countries. And we have had horrible trade deals and the time to get out of them was the last decade, you know, and build here was the last decade. Now we're behind the curve so far that can we let, all of this just fall because it's going to have such a huge economic impact. And I think that there might be a case for, yeah, just washing our hands, just letting it go. Um, But that is going to require a significant portion of the population to buy in. And I don't see anybody on the right 
making a coherent argument. I think that the immigration debate, uh, if you want to call it debate, <laughs> was a uh, was necessary. I think the Twitter import story was important because it, it emphasizes how you know free speech, it's uh, our ability to communicate with each other being hindered by you know gatekeepers. It's a it's a part of a larger story, and I think we're in a bigger story right now that uh, centers around, uh, like I said, immigration, uh, trade with the world, and you know this globalization. We'll call it that, and also, um, like I said, what was I? I just said the three things, but <laughs> but I think those are the great debates of our time, and we're not having them. Nobody's really having them, or we're having them in a very subtle subtle way and we're just tiptoeing towards what i see as a disaster and like you said i don't want to i don't want to send anybody to war in taiwan to fight basically about our ability to have microchips you know and cheap goods in america that does not sound like a good idea to me you know but also i don't want our economy to collapse because we're cut off from wheat <laughs> oil gas, uh, all of our goods, our ability to make, uh, you know, every, everything that we have, you know, there's some piece of it in almost every country. And if those countries do uh, enough of them ally against us, it's just going to put us in a world of hurt. And so, yeah, do I think that it's our, in our economic best interest, in our, is it our ability to survive as a nation to fight? Yes. But that's a harder but what, I don't want it to get there, I guess is what I'm saying. So, you know, I, I, again, I think Biden is a very, very weak leader. That is the best way I can describe him. We're However, in this business right now because of Afghanistan. I mean, and, I'm, I'm convinced because of the Afghanistan withdrawal, that's where Putin sharpened his knives and said, okay, these guys are weak. They're not going to do anything. We better strike now. I, I, the reason I throw Taiwan out there is because I think that because of Afghanistan, you're liable to see a move into Taiwan or at least a stronger a stronger arm used by control them because I think they think we won't do anything or that we are incapable of doing thing, anything or incapable of making a decision fast enough to stop them. And I think they think they probably have a limited though. I think they're looking at the next election thinking, man, this is the chance of a lifetime. We haven't had anybody this lost and incompetent. I don't know, since maybe Ulysses S. Grant, you know, I mean, this Biden has got to be the worst president next to Ulysses S. Grant. And that guy was drunk all the time. <laughs> so I've never, I've never seen a man not drunk uh, make just be this ridiculous. I didn't mean to cut you. No, I, well, I, I, I guess I'm a little conflicted on that because I see Biden as, I do I want to get out of Afghanistan? Absolutely. Do I think that the military industrial complex, you know, for lack of a better term, did not want to get out of Afghanistan and kept us there for, you know, Trump was supposed to get us out, but Trump didn't get us out. Obama was supposed to get us out. He didn't get us out. Everybody has not been able to get us out effectively, and Biden did. So do I credit him that? Yes, great. But, and how could he have known that it would be such a disaster? I think the fact that it was a disaster, it speaks more to the incompetency of the deep state, if you will. And I yeah. think that to me, that's a bigger problem. 
when our professional military class can't pull off basic operations in a third world country, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And I think that's the message that sends. Now, again, I, I just like to nuance that because I feel like Trump didn't do it, <laughs> but Trump should have done it. You know, everyone should have done it. So I'm going to try to give Biden the credit that he's due for actually doing it. Was his timing absolutely awful? Terrible. So. Yeah. And I think that uh, his his perception in the world uh, took a huge hit there. So I agree with you that I think that that's why Putin is doing it now. I think the demographics in Russia are just getting worse and worse. I think there's a lot of factors why Putin chose to do it now. And that was one piece. I think that was a major piece. So I would absolutely agree with you. I just, I want to give a little credit to Biden where, you know, I think he's been in politics long enough. The one thing that I give him credit for to just sort of three, see through the bureaucratic BS and be like, okay, generals, you're, you're just going to do it, you know, and just push them to actually do it. I hate that they were incompetent to do it. Um, I have a buddy of mine who's in the military and I was talking to him about, if the U.S. went to war, we would look basically like Russia in Ukraine. Um, because for the first month or two, we would. We absolutely would. You know how many people fail their P P uh, PRTs, their physical fitness test? It's, uh, it's like 10% of the military right now is just completely out of shape. If we were to get in or be attacked, it would be a disaster trying to mobilize it. The, the, we're just not set up. We've been in peacetime even though we've been in war. For so long, and I realize my face is frozen. That's very awkward. But uh, well, also, we do have an amazing elite force, um, but our our general forces perhaps are are terrible. Our elite forces are still the best in the world. That you can't can you can't exactly tell a military what it's going to be in an actual conflict. Right now, Russia considers itself in a special operations mode. Yeah, they goofed it up big time, you know, and, but an all out war with Russia would not be simple. I think the Germans made that mistake in World War II, right? Battle of the Bulge. They, they assumed that, hey, you know, where do we get the phrase, you know, don't attack Russia in the winter. Um, Wrong name, but yes. Yeah, sorry. It I wasn't the Bulge. World War II history. I just throw it all. Yeah. It's like a big, you know, it's too much things there going on never go into a land war in asia yeah so um yeah let's see uh let's get around to this last question can i add one more to this little point and the only, the only thing i want to add is is that another reason why i would like to get out a lot of these organizations is because i think the speed in which the u.s needs to pivot it needs to shed a lot of dead weight to do it. Like we don't need to ask France what the U.S. needs to do. We don't need to ask Great Britain what the U.S. needs to do or Germany what the U.S. needs to do. That, you know, great ship is turned by a little rudder. But I always point out that, you know, the Titanic didn't see the iceberg. No, they saw the iceberg. They just didn't see it in time. And they, and they had a great big old ship and they had to turn it and there wasn't enough time to turn it. So I just think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are going to need to be quickly pivoted and exiting these large organizations that we're a part of is probably going to be necessary in order to make those pivots, uh, you know, like to pivot back home. Uh, you're going to have to pivot back to uh, probably some type of, of uh, defense of the homeland. Uh, 
and uh, our U.S. our U.S. forces probably actually need to be reduced in size instead of increased because we actually have a lot that we're defending all over the world, a ton of money, um, and redeploy them into different areas. And so I would just one of, one of my points about ending NATO like now. I mean, of course, I would say no, I don't want to do it at all, but. You know, ending those things now is that I think the time for quick pivots is going to come and that a lot of these organizations are big, wieldy organizations and require Security Council votes and uh, everybody being on board and unanimity. And I think that we're just going to have to make much faster decisions than those organizations are going to be able to make uh, economically, defensively. You know, I even think a lot of those lines are going to be redrawn economically. You know, we talked a little bit about Russia, but, you know, Europe said they weren't going to buy coal in rubles. They were just going to not do it. And then it got cold and three countries are already buying in rubles. You know, uh, uh, Russia sent their first shipment of coal to China today, you know, and in one trade. So you're already seeing a lot of you're already every dollar that's not converted into a U.S. dollar and bought and used at the on the open market and the global market that's not being converted, that dollar's coming back here. That dollar's on. So like there may be great inflation ahead of us, but it's going to be a lot of little inflation leading up to then. And being able to pit it quickly, I think is important. So that's just one of my knocks against like large global organizations to distance from the rule, from the rule to the ruler. And then also uh, the, the slowness at which they uh, function. So the whole thing about buying in rubles is an, basically a sanction on Russia or by Russia on the U.S. by slowly inflating U.S. currency by sending it all back. That's exactly right. And you're seeing it with China, too. China's already sanctioning you in buying and having Russia buy in yuan. And each one of those countries doing that, Iran, I think, already uh, set up a, a military agreement just the other day with China, too. And each one of these little moves is moves us closer to a, a, a dual reserve currency or a multiple reserve currency. I think last time we were on, we even mentioned Saudi Arabia was kind of in negotiations already with China to sell uh, oil in one, too. I mean, that's a death knell for the petrodollar, uh, you know, if those kind of things happen. So and anyway, just, there's a lot going on in the world. So we'll get back to globalization. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's fun. I just uh, sometimes I run to the end of the thought and want to move on. But I, I like camping, you know, and, and talking about this stuff. And uh, I, I thought of it. I believe that. Go ahead. Sorry. I believe that chances are the reason that we have these long term commitments, the treaties and things like that is to as part of the agreements to make the U.S. dollar a stable thing in the rest of the world. We have to have a military presence in order to to guarantee the safety of these countries so that they are continue to be reliant upon U.S. currency. I, I, I think that that is uh, probably the deal that happened, and that's why we're in this situation. Um, so, Yeah, and I think that, that that's another thing that I kind of think about is like we, we, we have these special relationships because, because we have troops all around the world, because we have – because we give because away our – middle class because we do we make it good for them you know and and think of an analogy of like a you know a really bossy sister you know that has all her siblings kind of like 
you sit over here and play and I'm going to, you know, keep the bullies in the neighborhood away from you and whatever. And it just seems like it's a very controlling situation. And then when a bully comes up, another little girl, like, Oh, we can't, you know, Russia, we don't play with her. You know, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't like her. It just seems sort of petty the way we, the way we draw our alliances. And I think that uh, people are looking around and if it wasn't for the fact that we're the global bully, you know, that people might get up and walk out of the house. And we don't like that. (laughs) You know, the globalists don't like that. We don't, you know, we like everybody sitting there playing the game we wanted to play. You know, it's, it's our toys. It's our game. You're going to play with our toys. You know, you can't, uh, you can't play with that toy like that. You know, it just, it, it reminds me of that type of situation. Um, and sorry, this analogy just came to me on the fly, so it's probably horrible. But um, but back to Saudi Arabia, when you mentioned that, I thought that was, uh, you know, what wasn't it just last week? I, I want to say it was last week where they um, came into the meeting with our ambassador in shorts and started yelling at him and basically, you know, said, you know, throwing a temper tantrum and because we're trying to reduce the price of oil, right? Gas prices, inflation, you know, obviously Biden wants to bring down the price um, because I think that's hurting obviously his approval rating. So, um, but they're laughing him out of, you know, town. And to me, like, you can look at it, be like, oh, Biden's so weak. But then I also look at it like America and American power means nothing to these people we're so disrespected <laughs> by the saudi arabia why do we have why do we consider them this ally they they do it just overtly under trump they do it overtly now under biden but they always have this resentment towards us why do we why do we tolerate that you know it's frustrating from my you know oh. my patriotism comes out you know i get irritated with that um but that's that's all i know a little bit about saudi arabia i I mean we've been trying because they have a um they have leadership that wants to be more western is very friendly towards western ideas they've been trying to get the their leaders educated in western uh understanding and that has given uh, a lot of people hope that a country in Saudi Arabia in a very, very critical part of the world will become like us. Um, it will become, you know, westernized um, in, in true fashion, similar to the way that Japan did. So we're hoping to make another Japan out of Saudi Arabia. And that hope has kept, um, has kept us in the game, essentially, in Saudi Arabia. But I think that they've just proven that over and over and over that that's silly, that they're not serious. They're going to kill um, news reporters, you know, journalists. They're going to behead uh, people that disagree with them and publicly. And we just turned a blind eye to it. I mean, they, they, they are a despicable place. And we put up with it. Most of right, the hijackers right from 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia. And then we attack, you know, Saddam Hussein or whatever. <laughs> like what what or uh I always get him and mixed up with uh 
Saddam Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden. Yeah, I always say the wrong one in the wrong moment, and I I need to. Yeah, you got it right though. Saddam Hussein. Yeah, but uh, I always the the Saudi the Saudi regime is very interesting. You know the you know the crown is supposed to pass brother to brother. A father to son crowns pass uh, in the west. In the east, it passes brother to brother. So when the king died, uh, or or was uh, oh he was too old to rule. His son is the one who took power instead of his father's brother, and uh, they turned the they turned this the the Riyadh uh, Marriott into a torture chamber. That guy hung his uncles up by their basically their ankles, and tortured them until they gave up their computer codes so they could. There that people people didn't keep up with it because the Western news media doesn't have any interest in like uh, you know showing Saudi Arabia in a negative light. Uh, sometime and uh, so it was a very period over there when the king's son took over all that just recently and he's sort of cast as a reformer but because we didn't do a lot of work about his background uh, you know he, he did break some traditions and stuff there it's a very interesting scenario over there anyway uh, one of the things I've always complained about and this is just like I, I've always um, this was so in 2003 when we went to Iraq I was the only conservative I knew against it every conservative i knew i worked with guys man they would come down hard on me and the reason i was against it was that look i would say i would say things like look there's a reason why they're not a republic there's a reason why they still look the way they do and dress the way they do and act the way they do and think the way they do like there we have if you think about when you go and you read the Federalist Papers, they quote the Bible, but they also quote the Greeks, the Greek, the Greco-Roman, you know, reform. They, when they set up our Senate, they actually talked about how, why the Senate failed in Rome and how they were going to uh, fix that failure by creating a new check. I mean, they were interacting with 3,500 years of material, you know, so I would say like America's democracy, our republic was forged in like 3,500, 4,000 years worth of fire. And I complained that we were treating that cavalierly like it was instant pudding. We were just going to go over there and pour some milk in a bowl and stir in some pudding, and boom, you were going to have a democracy. So I've always made the case, and this, this uh, y'all may feel differently about this, but I, I personally don't feel like Islam has the moral foundation uh, to support uh, a republic in that way. Like even the ideas of republics were legitimately borrowed from the Old Testament. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there was a king, but there was also a, a Sanhedrin of 70. There's representative leadership. Each of the tribes have representative leaders. I mean, you can go back through that. There's a book called, by, uh, called Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, where he goes through how uh, all the, the original uh, governments and things like that, the way we were establishing our governments after the Reformation, they based a lot on the Old Testament there. And so my point has always been that they lacked the history uh, they lacked the functional, like, kind of ideas that needed to be in place so that you could have a democracy. And I've always made, my point has always been that if you gave them the ability to vote, they would eventually just vote a tyrant into place. They would choose that because that's what they've chosen before. Everybody would say, well, no, they didn't choose a dictator or they didn't choose a king. And, but the, the truth is everybody's ruled by consent. If we didn't consent, you know, if 30, 350 million people in this country didn't consent to Joe Biden ruling us, he wouldn't, you know, and that's always been the way it is. So I, that's the way I've always thought about why, why I thought a lot of these ideas that we have about 
spreading democracy with the sword. You hear George W. Bush say the world yearned for freedom. And I was always like, I don't know what world he's looking at. I don't see a world yearning for freedom. I see a world yearning for, you know, uh, power, um, you know, prestige for, you know, and they come by it any way they can. And most of the, most of the time that's might make makes right. You know, we were the first people to ever transition power peacefully. You know, when George Washington declined the crown here, when it was offered to him, he said, no, you don't need a king. You know, he declined the crown. And when we passed from one president to another, I mean, it was a momentous period in history. Nobody's ever done it before. We, we were the first to think that Saudi Arabia or Iran are going to do those things, you know, because we knock them over with arms. I think it's just naive. We, they're, they're, I, don't, I just don't think they're the particular religious persuasion of that part of the world is just the polar opposite of what we think. It's, it's, it's flipped around. And so I don't, I just don't think they, I just think Christianity produces the foundation for liberty and Islam or Buddhism or whatever ism you want to pour back into that slot generally just produces something other than liberty. So. No, I tend to agree completely. Um, and you know, I've been looking a lot into the Reformation um, for another video I'll be doing on kind of like tracing our ideologies back liberal and conservative uh, libertarian and socialism even. Um, and that's one thing that is really come up a lot is without the first great awakening in the colonies, you know, that, that set a place for the population to accept a lot of the ideas that the founding fathers were laying out and those the founding fathers drew from a lot of different places like you were saying and then once we had the two-party system after george washington said we don't need a two-party system or we don't need parties you know we have we fell into that immediately um and found out that you know healthy democracies debate big ideas you know the the issues of the day and created a, a party system anyway um, and so we have, have had these debates and that's where, you know, kind of, I was alluding to earlier, I feel like we're not debating the issues of the days, the party, par both parties, neither parties, I should say, are not debating what, what you're talking about. You know, like you were saying, you were the only person that was saying this because you were looking at, you know, how do these other countries work and what is our role in that, that should be something that we were talking about because like i said the world got smaller when we got the internet when we got the ability to like mass transit across the world airplanes flying around the world this suddenly became an issue and we don't have a framework right now for looking at these things and um and i think it's important i think it's really important to talk through some of these issues and debate them um from a place of is it possible to even spread democracy around the world you know i think that we just went into it with the idea of yeah we can we can spread you know this globalist ideology comes from a place where we have the tools um it's very thomas Paine. you know we we have the tools for democracy you know to uh to make this you know we humanity has found this you know this enlightened ideas and we can just use that and change the world and 
sort of the conservative movement was kind of like, okay, well, let's reform along the way, you know? And mm-hmm. that's why, you know, Burke was against the French Revolution. He didn't say anything about the American Revolution, but he was against the French Revolution because he saw that it would turn into a dictatorship. You know, eventually it did pan out and worked well for them, you know, but it wasn't necessarily a smooth transition, um, you know, the French Revolution. Um, Massive understatement. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Terrible. Led, led to Napoleon and the and the uh, essentially the end of the Holy Roman Empire. It, it, it altered all of Europe. Uh, you know, I, I I always point to that point that 1800s, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, right at the end of the 1700s. I mean, they're revolutionary not just in warfare; they're revolutionary in every way. I mean, in France, they basically were year one, changing their day names. You know, I mean, they uh, our, our revolution was certainly military, and it was certainly uh, it was certainly ideas that came from both revolutions. It was the idea that you could establish a foundation of a government between a government and its people, rather than between a government and a and its people and God, which was which which was the real revolutionary thing about uh, both of those foundings. So, yeah. So, like I said, the the Great Awakening and that 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 gave us a base for being able to do set up. The way we did um so yeah i, I think that uh, I, I totally agree absolutely 100 percent with what you were saying you know i don't think that the muslim world necessarily has the tools in their belt to even go through these ideas They're, they don't have a, that framework um that we had you know or blessed to have <laughs> i used know? to just ask like people would say you know we're gonna spread democracy there and i would say well, what do you mean by that yeah. Are you saying voting? Because if, if your definition of democracy is voting, your definition of democracy is woefully incomplete. I mean, it's woefully incomplete. You know, I mean, anybody can build a voting booth. And I mean, their voting has been going around for a long time, but democratic societies, re- republics, you know, especially people who are ruled under law, I mean, these are revolutionary ideas that the king and the lowest man in his kingdom would all answer one law that the law would reign and not man, essentially. I mean, this is, these are huge. Uh, and that, that, again, that derives from Christianity. You know, right. that derives right out, of, right out of the law of Moses. And it's, people don't take into account how absolutely revolutionary that, I would have, that idea would have been in the ancient world, much less all the way, all the way up into the modern era, that uh, people would be equal under the law and that the law would apply to them. That concept is not when you hear MSNBC uh, talk about it, they never mention anything about uh, what it really means to be a democracy or what a what type of democracy are we going to be. You know, Jefferson said democracies were as bloody coming in as they were going out. And uh, that democracy and our founding fathers didn't believe democracies were uh, things to be chosen. You know, they were created that uh, the rule of the mob, that 51% of the people under a democracy could deny 49% of the people their rights. Those, those are nonsense. But if you try and say anything against the idol of democracy in the modern era, prepare to be lynched. I mean, in every which way you can be lynched for saying that. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're really not a democracy. We are a republic, and a republic is vastly different than a democracy. And do we really want to spread raw democracy around the world? The left certainly does. You know, they believe Hillary Clinton should win the election because she got more votes, not because more not because more city, states and region or in regions voted for her, 
which they didn't. You know, you can look at the map, it's written down. But if you look at a couple of major cities, she wins LA, she wins New York. If she went, if, if we're raw vote counting, and that's the left's always trying to get rid of the electoral college too. You know, again, they want democracy. And uh, I think we should define those terms a lot better than we do. Well, I would say the left and the right. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of ironic to me that the, and we might disagree on this, but that the right, that the left went around how Donald Trump stole the election and Russian interference and, you know, swaying all these votes and whatnot, you know, and, and interference, election interference, and it wasn't legitimate and uh, went so far as to impeach him. And then now Donald Trump is walking around like, oh, it was an illegitimate, you know, election and I should have been, you know, uh, you know. Okay, um, so we're undermining, you know, this whole. Process. He's attacking democracy. He's well, he's undermining the legitimacy of, you know. So we're going to call it a rigged election when we lose, just like they called it a rigged election when they lost, and that didn't go so well <laughs> for them. You know, if it weren't for the pandemic, then you know he would still be president. I, I, I feel I don't think it had anything to do with, you know rigged election you know i think that's not uh didn't bear out um so well, we're getting off of <laughs> we're getting off so the uh last question here is what happens next right trade deals nafta the world health uh health organization world trade organization and the imf Inter international monetary uh what's that stand for i am international monetary fund yeah fund yeah, didn't write down what my acronyms meant and the blanking out. So, um, yeah. So, I guess I'll I'll say what I think will happen next. You know, and I kind of already alluded to this. You know, we're headed for World War Three or Cold War Two. I, I just think that there's one of those two is absolutely unavoidable. I think we're at a political malaise where our party systems are not talking about the actual issues of the day, which would be. Uh, globalism, uh, immigration, and um, it's, it's not addressing the concerns, and therefore we're not going to be able to uh, – somebody's going to come along. Some person is going to come along, and I thought it would have been Trump because um, he definitely attacked the globalization and uh, immigration. He was actually addressing the issues of the day, and – did not change the Overton window enough, apparently, uh, for for the conversation. And uh, somebody, I think that somebody on his side of the spectrum will win um, the next election. Um, he ha there has to be <laughs> somebody's got. Oh, in tech, that was the third one. I, I was saying three, and I, you know, um, nobody's talking about tech. Um, currently, and and even Trump. I mean, I guess he did attack the media and how it was fake news and all that kind of stuff. And I think that in a certain certain form um, was, you know, what I'm Trump talking would say. About. What I built Truth Social, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're we're going into the next phase of of what I like. I said the issues are, and the right has no clear vision in my opinion i don't think trump had a clear um message per se to address these things um coherently i don't think he certainly won the argument 
um, because I think he abandoned his own. I think he campaigned on the right issues, but I think he left them uh, when he got in office and he didn't um, didn't see them through. He didn't campaign on them in his second term. So I don't know what happened there. I think it was an instinctive, you know, he, he campaigned on his instinct of what the issues were. And I think he was correct. Um, but do I think he did very good? My opinion, not necessarily on, on fulfilling that what the issues are and satisfying that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so somebody on the right will come in or needs to come in and define these issues and lay out a, a vision for how we can move into the next um, phase of politics. The, the left, um, I think they're very stuck on their globalist uh, ideology. I don't think that there's any, um, any changing that. I think that, uh, you know, I don't necessarily think that it's the winning ticket, so to speak. <laughs> you know, I don't think they have the winning set of ideas um, there. And, and we can go through those, you know, in a different episode. So, yeah, I guess that's my take on what happens next. And I'd, I'd say as far as like Cold War, we'll know we're in Cold War II or World War III probably in the next couple of years. I think it'll be pretty clear which one it is. And I think we're headed per, for a pretty massive uh, I don't want to say depression, but recession, because I think it's a death by a thousand cuts. It's not like a bubble pop popping. It's not like the uh, um, housing market crash. It's not like a lot of the things that we've seen in the past. I think it's going to be food shortages this year. I think next year it's going to be, uh, you know, shortages on this and that. And I think it's just going to, you know, cascade and we're going to feel like we're in a, you know, a depression, but really it's, it's the numbers are not going to be that bad. Um, but I think everybody's going to feel horrible for a long time. Kind of like the great recession was the stock market started doing fine because they started printing all this money, whatever. And maybe the corporations and the people at the top were, I think we're going to have increased wealth inequality um, because that's the default mode of today, unless somebody can capture that argument and make a coherent argument um, against it, um, which I don't necessarily see anybody doing that right now either. I don't know. We need leaders on the right. Some, some people that understand what these issues are. Um, I really, I strongly, I, I feel strongly that we don't have any strong leaders. I'm wording that very weirdly, but I don't, I don't think there's anybody that's looking at it. I think Trump was a strong leader and, but is he going to come back, you know, next time? and actually campaign on the issues that are the problem. We'll see. That is yet to be to be determined, you know. And then the left, I mean, goodness gracious, what a disaster. Kamala coming next, you know, whatever. What do you guys think happens next? Let's see. Saki. Saki. Yeah. Saki. You answered everything. I, I I, yeah, well, I think she's the best president we've ever not had. So um like i see her more than anybody in the white house like i mean i know that she's the press secretary but she only, she seems to be the only person who's able to talk and barely but anyways um so final thought here um whenever you're coming up with a um a judgment on a trade deal or a law or something like that a treaty um a lot of times we're only considering will it work uh, we're taking a very pragmatic approach um, and there's, and that's got to be part of the 
part of the factoring, but uh, I would encourage whenever anybody looks at things, we should really start with not will it work, but is it just, is it wise, and then will it work? It, what's, what are going to be the effects on people? Um, is it going to create um, uh, imbalances between people as far as justice is concerned? Is it what is it trading the short term or the long term for the short term? Did we just sell our future? You know, did we just trade our birthright here if we do this deal? Um, and then the question of will it achieve what we want it to achieve? Will it even work? Uh, and I think a lot of the trade deals that we're looking at have been falling apart in either the first or the second category, either it's something that's caused injustice or in the world uh, in our, to our own people, or um, it just wasn't wise. We sold, we sold, um, we sold our futures for uh, a slight boost. Globalism really has done some amazing things for the American economy. Uh, it really, really has. Uh, but at the same time, we don't have the ability to produce anymore. So if something destabilizes, if somebody wants to impose sanctions on us, we're exceptionally vulnerable to them, um, which is what we're finding out slowly right now because we're trying to print our way out of that same problem. Like, oh, well, let's just print more money. <laughs> Great solution, not gonna keep working. Again, that's selling out the future for the present. So um, that's, that's what I would encourage everybody to uh, consider when you're talking about it with people like don't just don't just ask will it work you know does it do what it's supposed to do does globalism work the question is also is it just and and is it wise and i think the most of the globalist policies that we have implemented in the last 30 years yeah have been probably unwise some of them unjust and therefore are slowly breaking down. And that's why we're seeing such a backlash right now. So. Jeremy, what, uh, what happens next? Well, uh, you know, let me, let me say, first of all, it, it could be catastrophic. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I always like to think like uh, John Mark put forward, you know, probably another recession, maybe not a, a depression, things like that. Uh, I do think there are, I do think it's not 1970 and I do think it's not 1929. And I think we had uh, uh, a lot of future ahead of us building uh, productive economies and the industrial revolution and things like that. I think the internet revolution has been very interesting, but information's like water. It's going to be very difficult to maintain that dominance out of Silicon Valley. And I wouldn't even imagine it's really not. So, I mean, it could be catastrophic. I mean, the changes that are going on in the world today could be pretty pretty catastrophic for us. I mean, it may be uh, very bad, you know. Uh, there's a so there is the there is that chance. Uh, but I, I'm like you, I like veer away from that because if you predict catastrophe too often, you know what I mean. It's it's just uh, you know it's one of those things that people stop listening to you. So one of the things I think a future is, you know, I think we're sort of I like Neil Howe's uh, fourth turning, you know, that there's a first, second, third, fourth generation, and that he's been saying since the early 2000s that this is a fourth turning. Sometime before 2025, we would enter a real crisis period. I think we're clearly in the crisis period. I think we've been in a crisis period probably since the end of the Obama era. Uh, and so I think the next, the, you know, the next uh, 
is sort of like new revolutionary ideas, new revolutionary leaders. I would say that there is some, so I'm going to speak not from a Christian perspective where I normally speak from a Christian perspective. I'm going to speak just purely from an American perspective here. I think there are uh, some reason to be optimistic. First of all, you've seen massive migration away from the cities to small towns. I think the future is local. It is not it is not on the coast. I don't, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think the future is global at all. I think the future is local. I think the next sort of visionary leaders, uh, you know, the thing about Donald Trump that I never liked uh, was not so much his attitude as it was his sort of, he was a neophyte uh, politician and he surrounded himself with people who were either from Bush White House or from his own family. And I couldn't imagine a worse possible cabinet than you know, a Bush cat, a Bush cabinet mixed with a cabinet with a, a Trump family. I mean, that just didn't make any sense to me. So Trump's problem is he never, he didn't understand Washington. He understood sort of the problems, but he didn't know how the, the, the city worked. And, and uh, he overestimated his own abilities to make deals and things. And he was never able to take scouts. So I think the next leader will be somebody who can lay out a vision for the country, who can lay out a vision for what we should be in the direction we should be going. And he should be a man who knows how to take scouts too. Like he knows how the city works. Uh, you, you know, as, as much as I'd love to have outsiders in there, uh, outsiders don't understand how Washington works. It is not a business. It is government. And it is, you know, a place where monkey riches can be thrown into mechanisms very easily. And you don't have to do a lot to stop people. You just have to slow things down. That's really all you had to do. So even with the last election, you know, I knew it was over the election night, not because uh, because all the votes had been counted, but because of where the votes hadn't been counted, Pennsylvania and Michigan, full of union guys. You know, you can th they've been throwing monkey wrenches down in that system up there for 50, 60 years. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the where I think people fail to understand. So I think the future for America is going to be radically different. You do have some good leaders coming up. You know, uh, Elon Musk could be president or anything, but you do have people like him floating around the country. You have uh, Mark Cuban is out there, though I'm not a big fan of oligarchs. This will come off like I'm a fan of oligarchs. I'm not a fan of oligarchs. Merely pointing out that there are other very creative people out there who also recognize these problems that we do, except they have the difference between them and us is all we can do is have really a chat about them and a podcast about them. But these guys will throw some money at it, like buy Twitter, for instance, or uh, uh, you know, get involved in Bitcoin, for instance, like Cuban has and get ahead of the digital currencies and things like that. So I think you do have some, you know, I think DeSantis, if I was looking on the Republican side, I would think DeSantis is probably the future of the party. If he's not, we don't have any sense. I mean, he's the only guy I would imagine could possibly lead forward uh, as other than Donald Trump. And so I think Trump doesn't make it out of the primaries because I think he eventually is going to get hung up on the uh, vaccine business because all that suppression of information is going to have happened in his White House before it happened in the Biden White House. So and I also think globalism, because I think globalism is the past, I think the trade-offs with globalism are clearly seen now. It destroyed our towns. It's created opioid addictions. Tech oligarchs have basically poisoned our children's mind through social media. They've divided the country. I think the future is going to be a little bit different than maybe we imagine it, really. I think there's going to come a time in the near future where we really take a hard look at whether or not children ought to be using devices like that and whether they ought to be in mm -hmm. schools. 
I think uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, change in the way we do education because education is utterly failing. So the next rotation is a is a first generation uh, of the four turnings, and the, that that is usually radical change, uh, and radical change for the for the better. Generally speaking, uh, it doesn't always turn out for the better. We can have radical change for the worse, but uh, I would expect that there are a lot more really um, smart, savvy, uh, dedicated people to this nation and to their neighbors. And there's still a lot more hope out there for us than we probably can see just because the media obscures a lot of it. But podcasts are there, the internet's there. Uh, we're all free to, to, we're all still free to do things and hopefully that's gonna be even more free. So I think the future, the future is gonna be away from globalism. It's gonna be more local. Migration already shows it. The monetary system is going to change. There's a lot of change coming. We, we have a problem sometimes where we think the status quo is better than any future that we can imagine. And the status quo is always what we're trying to hold on to. But I would just encourage us to, to be braver and be ready to face, face the new seas. And uh, Web3 is out there. The ownership of your information is coming. The ability for you to leverage your own identity and your own life. Uh, I mean, the tools... The original tools of the internet boxed us in. The new tools of the internet, though, have the ability to do things and to set us free in ways that I think are really, really interesting. And so I just encourage us to look to the future with a lot of bravery and a lot of interest and to put on, put on a brighter set of goggles. Things are always darker before the dawn, so. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you both for uh, joining me today. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, this has been I always say that every conversation is my favorite conversation because I enjoy these so much. Um, I like, uh, just want to throw in there, I think DeSantis is probably the only one that makes any sense on the Republican side. Um, but I, I do worry, you know, that you know, just have that positive vision like you were laying out. And I, and I hope he can maybe attach to that. Uh, or maybe there is somebody else out there. Um, I certainly hope so. Um, but this has been this globalization episode, um, the last three. Um, next, we're going to talk about uh, tech and immigration and um, got a lot of things coming. Um, probably only two more episodes before my summer break. <laughs> so um, we will see you next time on the Johnny Random Show. <laughs>